The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. So listen now for God's word to you as it echoes to us from Colossians, chapter 1, beginning with the 15th verse. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. This is the word of God, my friends, for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So, today we're going to start with Copernicus. But don't worry, I promised we're going to make our way to Jesus. Just, just hang in there. Nicholas Copernicus was a Polish priest, a student of medicine, and an astronomer whose studies of planetary motion radically changed the way that we think about this planet. In the 1500s, while staring upwards at the night sky, Copernicus observed that other planets like Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars occasionally seemed to travel backwards in their paths. This backward travel, known to cosmologists as retrograde motion, perplexed Copernicus. He knew that if the current model of the universe were correct, a model that had been in place since Aristotle in 350 BC, if the planets and the sun all orbited the earth, then retrograde motion made no sense. It only made sense, Copernicus correctly surmised, if the earth and all the other planets orbited the sun. In 1543, Copernicus published his findings on the revolutions of celestial spheres about two months before his death. It took almost 70 years, though, before people began to understand and really start to wrestle with the Polish astronomer's complex argument and with his big conclusion. The Earth was not the center of the universe. 
shaken by this radical possibility, this questioning of a belief that had been around for thousands of years, the church banned on the revolutions of the spheres in 1616 and declared Copernicus to be a heretic. Now, fortunately, our hero did not live long enough to know that the hierarchy of his beloved church had sought to cancel him, nor did he live long enough to know that his ideas, while revolutionary, were not revolutionary enough. Because Copernicus, you see, posited that the sun was the center of the universe, and we now know, of course, that this is not true. As awesome images from the James Webb Space Telescope make very clear, our sun is simply one among billions of stars in the much larger swirl of the Milky Way galaxy. And our galaxy is one of over two trillion galaxies that are fanning out in our ever-expanding universe. As we marvel at the vistas provided by the Webb telescope, I hope you've been looking at these images, enormous clouds of colored dust, nebulas birthing new stars. Scientists explain to us that the dazzling pictures that we're seeing come to us from the universe's far distant past. In these fantastic scenes, we are looking at light that has been traveling for over 13 billion years just to get to us. The planet Earth and our bright yellow sun did not exist when these fantastic scenes that we're looking at were happening, when this light began its journey toward us. It's a mind-bending and humbling thing to look deep into space. It can make a person feel very, very small, decentered. And, and that may explain why the church in 1616 panicked and banned the book that Copernicus wrote. Humans like being at the center of things. And yes, I'm aware I'm standing in a pulpit in the middle of this room <laughs> while I'm saying this. My mama would be so proud. <laughs> Occupying the middle of a room or a conversation or a solar system implies power and control. This power may be fleeting and our actual ability to control events illusory, but being centered is also, ask Elon Musk, kind of addicting. I think of small children attending birthday parties of their friends and finding that experience to be rather difficult. Why is this other child getting the attention, the presents, the cake, and not me? Parents regularly have to pull their little ones aside and explain what is happening right now. It's not about you. <laughs> Evidently, some of our most public figures never got this message. <laughs> but I digress. When you get down to it, almost all of us, as we move through this complicated world, tend to see ourselves 
as a star in our own movie. It may not be a great movie. It may feel like it's got way too much pointless drama in it and not nearly enough victory parades, but still, we've persuaded ourselves that we sit at the center of a small universe. And, and this is a rather easy leap for our egos to make. It's a perspective thing. Peering out at the world from inside our bobbleheads, what else can we conclude? Obviously, everything revolves around me. And then along comes smarty pants Copernicus. He pulls us aside at the party and whispers, this isn't all about you. That's unsettling news. And it can make us sort of huffy. <laughs> Nobody likes to be decentered. Now, what do astrophysics and modern cosmology and their ability to decenter us have to do with Jesus and our care for the planet? I'm glad you asked. Long before Copernicus was shifting the, the nexus of the cosmos away from this planet, and, and long before decentering became a buzzword in woke academic circles, the Apostle Paul engaged in a little decentering of his own. Paul loved to talk about what theologians call the cosmic Christ. Like the first chapter of the Gospel of John, which the choir just sang so beautifully, in the beginning was the word, Paul describes Jesus as playing an integral role in creation. Now, now, this makes little sense to those of us who see history in a literal way, as first this thing happened, and then that thing happened, and then a third thing happened. Because Paul wants to turn history inside out. In fact, on the whole, the Bible is a lot like the Webb telescope in how it views time. When we look at the images that the Webb is providing, we are gazing at events like the birth of stars that took place 13 billion years ago. We're looking back as, as far as we possibly can at the origins of the universe. And yet, the sharp images that Webb is pulling in appear as though they are happening right now. The distant past has become our present. Compare this to what the Apostle says in today's passage. In Christ, Paul writes, all things in heaven and on earth were created. Things both visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, all things were created through him and for him. In him, Paul continues, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, God is pleased to reconcile all things. This is an outrageous claim. <laughs> Why? Well, because first off, Paul has collapsed the past and the present. The apostle describes Jesus, the gentle rabbi, son of a carpenter, a man who fished and shared bread with his friends and who told stories and healed broken souls as the Lord of all. Trillions, trillions of galaxies, 
untold numbers of stars, mountains, and maple trees, aardvarks, and elephants, everything big and small was created through him, says Paul. When Jesus stands among us, the apostle asserts, when Jesus stands amidst people and animals and trees on this planet, we are staring at the very heart of our creator. Paul's claim is shockingly expansive, and it's decentering. If, if you're into the sort of religion that says faith is something that exists between God and me, Paul tosses a sizable rock into your morning oatmeal. Jesus did not walk the earth so that people could spend the rest of history praying to him for help in finding their car keys. Christ came to show us that the creator of all is also the redeemer of all. The one in whom all things came into being, Paul writes, also plans on reconciling all things to God. Now, what does that mean? Well, basically, Paul wants us to see a connection between our Lord and the world around us. Jesus is not merely intent on saving individual human souls. In Jesus, we see the image of the Spirit who created this beautiful world, who loves this beautiful world, and who invites us to work together to bind up this world's hurts. This is Christ's agenda. Christ does not look at you as an isolated node, the star of your own movie. Christ is interested in you as part of creation's vast web of relationships, relationships that desperately need mending. This, my friends, is the work that Jesus would have us put at the center of our lives. Now, what will placing reconciliation at the center do to us? One answer, I think, can be found in the life and faithful work of St. Francis of Assisi, whose image is on the front of your bulletin cover today and whose feast day was celebrated throughout the world this past Tuesday. Francis, you may remember, described the relationship between humanity and the rest of the created world in familial terms. We are siblings to all of creation part of a flock of beings that Christ came to shepherd, to love, and yes, to save. Christ seeks to reconcile us to one another and to God by repairing the torn places in our family. We see this understanding reflected in Francis' famous Canticle of the Sun, Francis wrote this love poem to creation during a protracted illness as he lay in a cottage built for him by his partner in ministry and in life, Claire. We know the canticle as a hymn, all creatures of our God and King. It's a fabulous hymn. But the hymn is a paraphrase, a condensed and altered version of St. Francis' text. I'm going to read 
the original poem to you now. And I invite you to listen as I read for the ways in which Francis praises Christ by praising creation. Praised be you, my Lord, with all your creatures, especially Sir Brother Sun, who is the day through whom you give us light, and he is beautiful and radiant with great splendor of you most high. He bears likeness. Praised be you, my Lord, through Sister Moon and the stars. In the heavens you have made them bright, precious, and fair. Praised be you, my Lord, through brother's wind and air, and fair and stormy all weather's moods by which you cherish all you have made. Praised be you, my Lord, through sister water, so useful, humble, precious, and pure. Praised be you, my Lord, through brother fire, through whom you light the night, and he is beautiful and playful and robust and strong. Praised be you, my Lord, through our mother earth, who sustains and governs us, producing varied fruits and colored flowers and herbs. Francis describes creation the sun and the moon and the stars, the air and the water, the earth beneath our feet, as if, as if they were relatives whom we might meet and, and greet at a family reunion. And in this, St. Francis and the Apostle Paul are of one mind. Christ came to reconcile all of creation, to bind up every wound and to make our world whole. This is God's plan. It's always, says Paul, been that way. In other words, for 13 billion years and counting, Jesus has been a tree hugger. Now, if that decentering surprises us, we're totally going to need to steel ourselves for what comes next because Jesus wants the rest of us to be tree huggers too. Jesus wants us to get busy, not virtue posting and congratulating ourselves for being so good at pointing out other people's sins, but actively working to repair the tattered fabric of creation, taking steps ourselves to heal the places where our relationship with Mother Earth Sister Water and Brother Air have been broken. With that in mind, here's a scriptural challenge for the coming week. Do something. Do not let the enormity of the world's issues reduce you to depressed apathy or toxic anger. Do something. You don't have to bring the temperature of the globe down a degree by next Sunday, but, but do something, something more than virtue posting, something more than telling other people what they should do. You can sign up on our website for next Saturday's outreach project, cleaning up around Penny Bridge in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Go to our website. You can sign right up. It's going to be a great day. 
You could take steps to care for creation in your own kitchen. But do something to heal your relationship with creation. And then tell us about it. Send us an email, fapc at fapc.org. We plan to be creative with your responses. Reverend Sarah Speed is going to read your responses as she works on next Sunday's sermon. Friends, the last time we asked you to respond, we got a wonderful, beautiful set of emails. But some of you, some of you told me, I wish I would have taken the time to play along. So here's your chance. This church, right? You always get second chances. Take a step this week and do something to heal the planet or to repair a relationship. Hug a tree, hug a neighbor, hug a neighboring tree. Do something to participate in the reconciling work of Jesus and then tell us what you did. Go forth from this place, my friends, to mend what is broken. Have courage. Hold fast to what is good. Do not return evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. Love and serve the Lord. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.